Building an independent media platform in the Instagram age, while left-leaning spaces can sometimes be exclusionary, and navigating white feminism. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Maggie, and you're listening to Culture Club. This is our monthly interview with a person we find interesting and that we think you will too. We acknowledge that the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung people and the Gadigal people are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we live, work and record this podcast. We would like to pay our respects to Elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Chances are you've probably seen a cheek media Instagram post on your friend's stories. With its signature pastel purple branding and whip-smart commentary, Cheek Media is one of Australia's largest independent progressive media voices. Hannah Ferguson is a co-founder and CEO of the digital news platform founded in 2020. It now has over 80,000 followers with topics ranging from Australian politics to celebrity news. Hannah's debut nonfiction, Bite Back, has now hit the shelves. This insightful and smart book delivers much needed conversations around politics and feminism. Thank you so much for joining us today on Culture Club. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to chat with you. Um, it feels like we're just all catching up, us three, on a call. <laughs> just three friends you've never met before in person, but assume a level of friendship. I know, which is the digital age. <laughs> Would you be able to tell us about you and what you do for audiences who might not know you yet? Yeah, so I'm Hannah Ferguson. I'm the founder, the co-founder and CEO of Cheek Media Co, which is basically an independent progressive news platform. Sort of when it started in 2020, the idea was that it was a new youth media platform that was sort of challenging um, this idea that I think that a lot of journalism for young people is quite unserious, like pedestrian, junkie, punky. And I sort of wanted to like take the views of young people seriously, but provide like hardline left-wing opinions and sort of challenge the Murdoch media landscape as well. But it quickly became became something that was just not for young people, it was for everyone. And it just became this progressive challenge to right-wing media in Australia, but also it's it's really promoting progressive women's media um, and sort of reframing the conversation primarily through Instagram, but also through other platforms, have a website, TikTok, all of the usual. Um, but for me, it's just been an exciting three years of going from being a lawyer um, and living in Brisbane to doing this full-time and now releasing a book, it's out now, um, it's called Bite Back. Uh, it's basically the idea is it's feminism media politics and how we change it all how we how we make change as a community how we come together but it's really asking individuals I think how to challenge our own thinking it's not me saying my views are right it's me saying I'm open to the conversation but how do we have it in a healthy way so I think the book is trying to speak to what I'm doing with Cheek and they're very intertwined um but it's very exciting to have a book as well to go with what I've been doing online yeah, amazing. It must be so nice to feel like there's a tangible something you can hold soon um, compared to the digital realm, which we know all too well how like fleeting it can feel when it's all digital. Yeah. But you mentioned just before that you were a lawyer in Brisbane and now you have Cheek Media, which is just going wild on Instagram. See everyone I know resharing your post all the time. <laughs> 
So I was wondering if you could fill us in on that gap. What's the origin story of Cheek Media? Yeah, so I moved to Brisbane for university when I was 18. I'm actually from rural or regional New South Wales, Orange, um, which is about three and a half hours west of Sydney. But I got a scholarship to go to UQ and study law. So I moved to Queensland when I was 18 by myself, um, thinking, I think that a lot of us when we're especially 17, 18 and that like, I've got that massive eldest daughter, people please are overachieving (laughs) complex like a lot of us do. And I didn't know what I wanted. And so I thought law was the prestigious, impressive thing. And I didn't really think beyond that at the time. I think a lot of young people are sort of guilty of that, of like what's cool at uni and what's like impressive to post about, basically. Then I got to uni and I was like, this is the worst. This is genuinely awful. Not just because like I I really enjoyed the subject matter, but I really disliked the culture. I really thought that like law as a cohort in most universities in Australia is really elitist. It's really you know, upper class, private education, white, heteronormative, stuffy. And I I struggled to make friends. I didn't really get it. I wanted to become more progressive. And I did through living on campus and meeting different people at uni as you do. And I sort of also felt like excluded from these spaces. Like I felt like I could intellectually keep up, but I was like, I don't feel like I'm part of a conversation. I don't feel like anyone's reflecting on their privilege. And I was kind of like, I've come from a conservative family. I wanted to do something different. So I started volunteering with a feminist not-for-profit called the One Woman Project. And I met my two co-founders there who were actually like my supervisors at this organization. Mm. We made a magazine together for that um, not-for-profit. And then we sort of decided there's something missing in the media landscape and why don't we have a crack? And that's how Cheek was born, basically, was the three of us going, let's just start an Instagram platform, let's start a website and let's just have a, have a go, basically. And it was at the height of COVID lockdown when BuzzFeed sort of had fallen and we were like, there's gaps in the market for this, you know, and we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, and we just started posting pretty consistently and it was basically... The takeoff was definitely before the federal election last year. Mm. It was about 10,000 followers in the space of seven days. The growth was huge. And it was because no one was kind of answering to this this Morrison government. The media was supportive of that in large part. And so we were trying to challenge that and people were flocking to it because they weren't seeing it anywhere else. Gave me an outlet to not only... Um, develop my writing skills to challenge this legal background but also use it, but to see another career path. But for me, it was also about like offering something new and teaching myself as I went along. Like I'm not better than any cheekful. I'm not instructing. I'm, I'm literally learning as we go and at the same pace. And I think that's, that's kind of the feel is like I want a two-way dialogue. I don't want to be patronizing people or talking down to people. I'm learning with you. That's kind mm. of the whole premise as well. Completely. And that process of starting Cheek with two of your friends, how was that? I think Jazz and I especially are always keenly interested in the dynamics of like friendship and business and how they intertwine. So yeah, what was that like for you? It was really good actually because they, both of my co-founders, Kristen and Catherine, were a bit older than me, a couple of years older than me. And they had guided me through working together with a not-for-profit. And, you know, we each had a very different skill set. And the way that we worked was very different. I think that's how I think that's how friendship serves best in business. And also our friendship kind of was formed around the business. Yeah. So we had only known each other for a brief amount of time before we started. So we were kind of building friendship and growing friendship and connection through Cheek as well. Um, and so we had like Catherine was a brilliant 
uh, graphic designer who helped with the website and all of that beautiful aesthetic that you see with Cheek. Kristen is the most like regimented, consistent person ever. And so I was kind of like the way we used to describe it was like I was the Hamish and Kristen. Uh, I was the Hamish and Kristen was the Andy. Like that was the dynamic. And Catherine would do all of the graphics and the um, more you know aesthetic things for Cheek. But I think that as a friend group, it was really it was it was such an interesting process to build a business around a friendship and now it is just me so since last october it's been just me um and that's an interesting transition too to go from having two co-founders to just being by yourself and and also knowing and understanding and acknowledging that it's it was their baby and it's not just my thing um and how to kind of remain grounded in that and i'm still even though they're not involved with cheek anymore i still make every decision thinking would they be okay with this because i don't mm. want to I don't want to undo that work as well. And that's a hard, a hard moral thing internally with me. And so are you doing this full time now by yourself? Yes. So I was doing, I was working as a lawyer, as an industrial officer for a union, actually. So not as a lawyer formally, but I was, you know, running matters in the federal court and fair work commission um, and doing cheek on the side until January of this year. And so at that point, we had more than 50,000 followers. It was like daily post. And being in Brisbane, it just meant it was such a struggle because I wasn't kind of in the sphere I needed to be to be doing the networking and branching and expanding that I needed to be doing for Cheek. And it was kind of like a moment where I had to make a choice. And it was a big risk because there isn't that safety net when you're self-employed. And so that that was a big moment too. But I decided like it was now or never. And I knew that, like I loved my job in Brisbane and I loved my life in Brisbane. But I've known since I started Cheek that it was going to be my thing. Mm. And so it was like I had that gut instinct and I knew. And so it's been a really, really big learning curve the last eight months. But like every day I wake up and I'm like, this is my thing and I know it. And that's just amazing to feel at 25. Yeah, it's such, it's a lot easier, I think, to trust yourself when you have that gut instinct. Yes, yeah. And I also love the, um, you made a Instagram video the the other day when the Matildas were playing and you were like, it's just me. I'm sitting at the pub at halftime making these little tweets on Canva. I think Maggie and I know all too well when people are like, oh, put us in touch with your like publicist team or whatever. And we're like, it's just (laughs) us. Like scrap, you just scrappily do stuff when you have the time, right? And that's how you end up building something like you have done, which is incredible. Yeah, and I think that it's so funny. I constantly get emails that are like, "Put you know, can I come into the team, into the office and meet the team?" Mm. And <laughs> I also think it gives people room. Like, what I find interesting is that I forget people don't know it's just me. So when people are critical or when people are awful, mm. which they are often, um, I take it so personally. But I also realize that they're expecting X amount of coverage because they think there's ten people working on it. And if they knew the reality that I'm one person who's just sitting at the pub at halftime at the Matildas game tweeting my little heart out, they'd probably go a bit easier or they'd be a bit mm. more understanding. But I think there is an expectation that I'm not saying I'm not publicly always saying I'm one person and most followers I don't think realize I'm one person and that's a that's actually a compliment to be sort of faking it to the point where people think it's a team or an office or like Mm. we've got all this funding um but the reality is it is just me having a go and having a crack and I will get it wrong I will mess it up I will make a mistake and I think it's like for me I think the chaos and the messiness of the way I post and the way I engage is the greatest strength of it because I think that people are if I just have the conversation and say I effed that and I want to talk about why. I always am scared, but people are so, so understanding. And I, I, I was always worried about that, especially with social media. But it's been shocking how positive it's been, which is really nice. 
Mm. Can you remember any examples of that happening where you've gotten something quote unquote wrong or you've had yeah. a good dialogue with your audience in that way? Yeah. So a good example would be a few months ago, uh, I think maybe February or March, when one of the it was a voice note that came out from Andrew Tate and it was really graphic um, mm. about sexual violence. And I put a quote from the audio recording as the front tile on a cheek post where I wrote about what the recording was, what it meant, what we should think and do about it and how to converse about it, basically. But I put a content warning above the quote, but the content warning was much smaller in a different font. And when I posted it, I received immediate 10 or 15 comments. And the worst part was I'd put my phone on, I usually put my phone on Do Not Disturb for the 20 minutes or half an hour after I make mm. a post because I don't want to deal with it. I just want to go and have my lunch and just like step away from the instant gratification of social media response. And so I put my phone down and when I picked it back up, I realized that people were, I had put a lot of people into distress basically. Mm. And I, you know, the comment was, the the, the sort of the, re- the rhetoric was, it didn't need to be like that and you've caused harm and you could have put a front tile on it saying what the content was so we didn't have to swipe through. And so I immediately took it down. I did that and I reposted it and I got a few messages that were like, it's just not good enough. And you know what? It's not. That's just fact. Um, and I fixed it and people were really thankful and kind and and really empathetic towards that. But at the end of the day, it wasn't, you know, there's there's nothing I can do because at the end of the day, when I think back, yes, I was just rushing through the post and I wasn't really being thoughtful or considerate. You know, I was just getting it out. I was getting the information out at mm-hmm. speed because it's messy and that's what I do. But I must have also, there must also be part there where I reflect and go, did I want that to be inflammatory? I must, you know, I, I didn't think about font sizes. I didn't think about that graphic. And it's also about for me moving forward going, it doesn't matter you know, that I'm getting likes. It matters that people aren't harmed. And that's always going to be my priority. And that's what I, that's what I purport media should do. And it's about following the steps that I want to, um, that I, that I criticize and, and amplify in other sources. And so for me, it's like just being honest, acknowledging the mistake, feeling bad about it, because feeling guilty is not a bad thing in this scenario, but making that manageable and going, okay, got to keep moving though. Mm. I've acknowledged it, I've sat with it, I made a mistake, but not also allowing that to stop me from doing my job. Completely. Um, I think it's so bang on what you're talking about with, I guess, how all of us in whatever kind of aspect of the media industry we find ourselves in Australia, like we do fall into the tendency of like, okay, we're usually under deadline or we're usually in a rush and we are like subconsciously thinking about likes and how things are going to be perceived and sometimes these things do slip through the cracks but I do really respect the way that you handled that and the way that you just um, told us about it so I appreciate you sharing that one. Thank you. It, it, I mean it's just like we're all going to do it and it's just thoughtless but it's like you know you've got to be the change that you're expecting to see. Yeah, completely. And back um, just before you were talking about how, you know, it is a interesting position you find yourself in running Cheek Media all by yourself. And I mean, that's not the only solo project you've embarked on, right? Your book is out now, Bite Back. Can you tell us about the process of putting it together? Yeah, and it's a terrible process. I'm not a routine (laughs) or disciplined person. So I actually, like, this is terrible, I think, when I say it out loud, but I signed the contract for the book, I think, December last year uh, or November, and then Mm -hmm. I had to hand it in in March. Um, That is fast. That's a fast. That's fast. I also was working full-time alongside Running Cheap until January. 
and then I moved to Sydney in January and I, 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 this is horrible. I don't even know if my, pu- my publishing house would want me to say this. I wrote the book in 58 days. That is incredible. And I, that's horrendous I, to say aloud. I don't think I've said it out loud. <laughs> but I, I am not someone who can work without intense pressure. Mm-hmm. I am someone who's like, hey, with my little tweets on the Matildas game, but that's actually how I best work is like 10 minutes, go, 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 do your best work right now. And that's not good, but that's exactly how I was as a uni student. It's exactly how I was as a school student. And the editing team have been brilliant at making me go back and be like, you could make that better and you know it. And I've been like, so true, Queen. <laughs> so it's like... It's been a, it was, I, I think the thing for me though is as much as I said it was written in 58 days, I knew exactly what I wanted it to be by that point. Like I had the structure. I'm not, it's also, it's not a book of heavy research. It's not a years long endeavor. It's not a, it's not a, I mean, to some people it will be a really heavy text. Um, I'm not undermining that, but I think that it's like, it's a book of my thoughts and opinions that have been formed through my work over the course of years. So it's like, I know what I think and what I believe. And I have a lot of conviction in that. It's just the actual discipline of putting it out well was like not long enough. That's it's not, I'm not proud of that. But (laughs) Next book. If there is one, I'm not sure if there is, it was really hard. Uh, It might be better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've started reading it and we can say that it's incredible and we've yeah I was reading it in the cafe this morning and it's very easy to read and you have great descriptions and yeah even though the content's heavy it's a a good flowing read so congratulations thank you thank you incredible you wrote it in a summer essentially was it just like get up every morning and just sit at your computer all summer or uh negative it was (laughs) it was me my friends putting me on block until I hit a certain word count every day Oh it was God. my best friends being like, do you need food? What's going on? Like the, I wrote, I remember I wrote 32,000 words in seven days before the due date. No. I, I actually don't know. I shouldn't be this honest. I can't <laughs> lie though, because I'm like, isn't it a bit impressive? But I'm also like, it's terrible. Like that final week I was writing 18 hours a day yeah. and I, I sent it off the first manuscript and I was just like a shell of myself. Like mm. I was like, I, because it was like someone had just absolutely taken my brain out of my head and put it in a glass jar somewhere I was like I was hollow up here and I had Mm. no thoughts just vibes and I slept for like three days straight it was really bad but I think that it was like a process of I think the the reason there was 32,000 words in that last seven days was because so much of it was write 5,000 words delete 2,000 right Mm. it was just Mm. so much back and forth with myself Yeah. yeah and I have to say I actually don't remember the last time this has ever happened I read it all in one day Really? I read it all yesterday. Yes. I was obsessed, Hannah. Like it was so engaging, so, so enjoyable to read, even though as you mentioned, like it it does grapple obviously with some heavy themes, but loved it. I literally ate it up. Nice. Because also like I know that it's jumping between a lot of different topics and I, I hoped the effect was you're not getting uh, not to say this is what happens with other nonfiction books, but when it's on one thing, it gets it's hard to keep going. Mm, I was hoping mm. it was like one chapter, bang, next idea, next yeah. idea, and you're getting a taste of everything. And it's like that that core ideas of cheek and women's media generally. But that's such a compliment. Thank you so much. Oh, of course. So one thing I felt really interesting learning about you is, um, you know, you don't shy away from your background as well. You know, you went to a Catholic high school in Orange, New South Wales. You also speak quite openly about your um, some of your conservative family members. So I'm wondering how did this all shape your political views and outspokenness? Yeah, so 
I mean, it's really interesting because my parents both follow Cheek and like I'm pretty open about sex, politics, everything on Cheek. And so I think that they've really adapted well. Like I absolute kudos to them truly because that's not easy. Um, and it's not easy to be put on blast really by mm. your child in the public sphere. And that is what I'm doing. And so thing about my parents is when we, when I was growing up, I think that they just weren't that politically engaged and they had that Murdoch rhetoric just deeply entrenched. Like they are people that are like liberals are better for the economy. You know, they are the mouthpiece for that sort of really, the plain and simple headlines that everyone knows and hates. Um, but I think that now, I, I think the most important part of this conversation is, yes, I'm quite critical of my parents and their views and, and I was brought up with those views. And so it wasn't until I was 18 or 19 that I have changed because I have friends from high school who were coming out in year 11 and 12 and I did not know how to respond because my parents didn't support gay marriage. Mm. Um, and so I had grown up in that household with that mindset. And, and I think the point to be made is, yes, I have shame and guilt about those views, but I think I want to be living proof that anyone can wake up to this conversation as well. Yeah. Not to say that I was bigoted or, you know, it's not like that, but I was very confused about my views because I'd only had that experience in a regional small town with a conservative family and a conservative school. And so... Now, I think the best part is that I'm doing this with my career and my parents are so open to it. My parents are ringing me to talk about a headline and to ask my take and not to agree with it, but to say like, am I missing something? Yeah. Um, and we're having these conversations all the time. And no, they're not completely on the same page as me with every single one, but they're open to listening and we're always having that conversation. And so for me, it's like my entire shtick is like, we need to learn how to be not sympathetic or forgiving necessarily for hateful and harmful views, but for the people that are just asking the question and, and have the wrong idea, but not by fault of their own, there's a difference between being hateful and being uninformed. And I really want to bridge that gap and say to people, if you're, you've only grown up for over decades with a Sky News diet, it's actually not that hard for me to sit down with my parents every couple of months and say, X, Y, and Z facts. These are my views. This is why this view is wrong and have a hard conversation, an uncomfortable conversation. But I think over time they get easier. And so for me, it's like, I don't feel like I'm grappling with anything anymore because my family knows who I am and I'm not willing to shy away from that. It's actually my extended family that are harder yeah, because we're not as close and we don't see each other as often, but they hold the same views. I think for me, it's about owning my views, being open to having my mind changed, being open to healthy conversation not being so defensive and instead sitting with the understanding of why they might think the way they do and saying, okay, where can we meet in the middle? Where's the common ground? Where's the moral agreement? And can we go somewhere from there? Yeah, well, that's the first chapter of your book, No Politics Before Dessert is a chapter name. And yeah, I found that super, it's super important to have these conversations. And I think sometimes in left-leaning spaces, we can be so like, it's self-care to like, be in an echo chamber almost like I'm putting my myself first by like blocking anyone whose opinion is different to mine or like I'm not having that conversation with you because if you don't get it you're stupid and yes. we both love this quote in your book which we both bookmarked um it says <laughs> there is an immediacy and demand for opinion and progression to be uniform in left-leaning spaces to match pace if you are falling behind you are failing if you do not have the vocabulary you are simply not radical enough can you talk about your experience with this and why it's important? Yes. Um, 
this is actually kind of why Cheek was born because when I was volunteering with this feminist not-for-profit and I was 19 or 20, I think, at the time, um, I made this magazine and it's it was like their central publication that was helping just to raise money because the, the central element of this um, not-for-profit was that they ran healthy relationships courses in schools. So it was really positive and I wanted to make something they could sell to get more funding, blah, blah, blah. And when we um, developed the magazine, had a bunch of different contributors, um, the style guide that they chose, this is a random example, but I think it proves the point mm. well, they wanted women to have X inserted in the place of E or A um, to be more inclusive. And at the time, again, coming from really conservative background, just moving to a city, just sort of getting my, finding my feet at uni and becoming more feminist and discovering what that word even means to me. I was confused, but I didn't feel like I could say anything because I thought that to ask the question was to be offensive. Mm. And I remember, I remember at this time there was this movement towards like the women with an X or, uh, in the place of an A or an E as being like, well, that encompasses all women, including gender diverse, transgender women, right? And my immediate thought was, isn't that, isn't that the opposite? Isn't that exclusive because wouldn't we just say women is all women yeah. and not change the word? Because that's sort of changing, that's saying you need something different to be included. And that didn't make yeah. sense to me logically. And so I never said anything, but I was confused. And that's part of the reason I actually left that not-for-profit and started Cheek, because I was like, how do I make a space where someone who's just getting started with left-leaning ideas, with gender equality, which isn't a radical idea, um, can feel welcome to ask questions but it's also about changing the, the rhetoric. So it's about how do we not offend when we ask these questions as well? And it is a, it is a fine, fine line often. And for me, that was a prime example of I felt so fearful that I decided I was unwelcome. And that was on me. I probably could have asked the question. But then a few years later, you know, we had this movement back from that. from that, And there was suddenly the X wasn't needed and we weren't using that. I think that's kind of a, a good reflection of left-leaning space as well. As often there's this, this um, deep want to jump the gun on everything. Mm. And I consider myself to be really radical and left-leaning. But also sometimes I can be made to feel centrist, you know. And I think that what the left gets wrong is certain corners demonize people who aren't keeping up. And my question is, how do I make a space and how do I create a sense of community with people that feel comfortable to learn more and feel comfortable asking questions that may, also as a white woman with privilege, I'm more than happy to be asked these questions. I don't want to speak for anyone else, but I am more than happy to take my time to make sure that you are more educated so you don't offend someone who may be part of the marginalized group you're asking the question about. And so for me, it's like how to create this safe space for people, how to make people feel welcome and how to reduce infighting and say, we don't have to agree point blank 100% on every issue to create a movement and create change. And that's really what I wanted to sort of propel as an idea with that quote. Completely. And I mean, you just um, touched on it there, but I also especially loved your last chapter in the book and you talk about how, quote, exclusive, white and judgmental, the feminism you were engaging in felt uh, when you were younger. So I want to know, as a white woman who is a feminist, how do you avoid falling into white feminism? I think as a white woman, you do fall into white feminism, right? I think mm. that's your starting Your starting point is, and, and I think it's because this is really harsh, but I find the biggest struggle is getting people to care about issues that don't affect them. 
That's advocacy, right? That is people generally are propelled into activism by an experience they have had. So whether that means, you know, you were a victim of sexual violence or you're part of a marginalised community and you're not being heard or you're being oppressed by another group, you are usually ignited by your own lived experience, which is fair. My question is, how do we go beyond that? And how do I go beyond that, right? And it's like, I don't always. Sometimes I fall into the trap of caring about issues that I see myself as part of and I will never be... I think being intersectional is a constant work. I'm not going to sit here and be like, I am a perfect intersectional feminist. I am absolutely not, you know. And I think that people are so desperate to be immune to criticism that they end up being too arrogant about it. And so for me, it's like, again, I'm going to F up and I'm not going to represent every group. I'm not always, you know, my my content... I don't always remember to put the image description and I should and it's not good enough and I don't always get a good cross-section of posts and I need to be paying more writers to write more intersectional pieces. Like there are so many things that I could be doing better every single day and it's a constant work and it's a constant list of what's that one thing I could do tomorrow, next week, in a month, in a year. Um, And I think the thing about white women is that there's this tendency to see women as a homogenous group there's this tendency to think the way forward is to improve our experience, but often the feminism that that ends up looking like is white women's privileges rise, but the general equity of all women does not. And it's about increasing privilege as opposed to moving a movement forward of gender equity. So I think that's the difference also between like equality and equity is like we're just all we think that if our experience improves we'll drag everyone else up with us and that's just not the truth I think a lot of white women close the door and lock it behind them mm-hmm. and so I think that it's about being critical it's about opposing that choice feminism ideal that like anything a woman does is good because she's a woman like you know I'm not going to defend Julie Bishop or Pauline Hanson I'm here to criticize them as equally as the men that they actually support so for me it's about being aware being reflective and knowing that I could always be doing something more, not not sitting in guilt or shame enough to stop me from doing anything, but being aware and deciding what I'm going to do each week to do something better and putting my money where my mouth is as well. I need to get better at that and more consistent. On the topic of white feminism, we've seen in the last few years, especially on social media and Instagram, the concept of activism virtue signaling especially came around um with the black lives matter movement and the sharing of infographics to stories which it also has kind of been turned into a misogynistic joke going on a tangent i do find that a lot of uh particularly men are making fun of women who post infographics to stories now um but how do you grapple with this when like a lot of your content is this like tweet Mm. to infographic story pipeline Absolutely. And obviously I build engagement and followers through that, Mm. right? And so it's like people's performance of specific issues is my win. And that's really hard Mm. to deal with. Mm. And it also means that it's horrific because when something's going really wrong, that's my biggest period of growth. And it's not because I'm capitalizing on harm, but it's like I'm trying to bring people some sort of understanding or trying to put people's thoughts into words and, and and give that validation or affirmation of the feeling and the experience. But you're right. And also, like, it's really hard because people take much more easily to issues that affect white women. There's the share rate, the like rate, you know. It's the engagement I've got with the Matildas versus my engagement with immigration posts. Mm. You can't even compare them, you know. Yeah. 
And a lot of the time people are saying, I want this content, I want this content, I put it out, I get nothing. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I don't know how to navigate that because it me- it does not make it not important, but it also means that the algorithm buries it, people don't engage with it, and it's very hard to know where to put your time to make the distribution as intersectional as possible, right? And it's it, it's you know it's not great at the moment. It's really hard to navigate personally. I think that with this performance idea as well, I think that when people share things online as a as a I support this view, it is a pipeline to get started. I think that people want to feel part of something and they want to feel, and, and I think that, you know, January 26 is usually a good example of when people feel most like activating something. But my question is, how do I then throughout the year go, well, if you weren't at a January 26 Invasion Day rally, what are you doing with your voice shirt on, unless you're also participating and listening at other times of the year. During NADOC week, are you just hiring someone, but what are you doing for the rest of the year in your workplace? How to continue that conversation and make it consistent and make it reflective of like, are you doing it because it's a mark in the calendar or it's a specific day that you need to perform? How do we build on that? And It's hard because I don't want to build on it through shaming, but Mm. I want to build on it through questioning as to why. Why do we pick it up and put it down? We pick up and put down issues all the time. And yes, there's a lot, the news cycle is relentless and it's exhausting and there's a lot of fatigue. And people do need to have hope and positivity in order to continue engaging with different issues. But for me, it's, I understand that a lot of the time social media is performative, but that doesn't make it useless. It means the next question is, how do we take it a step further? How do we go from sharing the infographic to donating to the GoFundMe? How do we go from liking the Instagram post to buying the book? How do we go from, you know, commenting or sharing it with a friend to paying to attend the seminar and listen to that person speak and taking a friend with you? And it's not going to be perfect, but I will celebrate everyone's slow progress as long as the intentions are good. I mean, there is intention versus impact, and that's an important consideration, but I'm not going to demonize someone for it. I just want to ask, what's the next step for you? I love that. And as the future PM of Australia, <laughs> what do you wish more people knew about or cared about when it came when it comes to Australian politics? I think that people, like my greatest passion is that people feel like politics and the law are boring and complicated and stuffy. And they are, but the reason they are is so that you are too scared to engage. The reason that the language is used, the reason that the systems are in place is because they feel terrifying and they feel complicated and it's all bureaucracy and it's all shit, really. And so for me, it's about saying, this is a a time to step up. I want you to feel FOMO. That's actually what I want people to feel. That's what my content aims to do is I think that people's best engagement is when they feel like they're being tricked. And if I say to people, these nine-letter words that these lawyers and politicians and gatekeepers of corporate Australia are putting forward can be dismantled and reframed simply, which is what I try to do with Cheek. And if you feel welcome to this conversation and like your voice matters, we can change everything. But people aren't taught in school for a reason, particular political elements, particular historical elements, particular legal elements. And those, those baselines and foundational knowledges should be given in Year 9 and 10 because I think that it would make us all better voters and better participants in the legal system and in society generally, right? My passion is how do I make this complex issue easy for people so that the next time they're asked about it, they can engage in a conversation with a family member, they can know how to vote better. I'm not going to tell you how to vote, I'm not going to tell you how to converse, but I want you to feel empowered to do it. And so for me, it's like if I was to enter politics, 
I would, my deepest hope is that I would completely reshape the way politicians speak to people, the way we engage with communities. And I have, I don't even know if it's possible. I can't see a world where politicians don't have this stuffy puppet media training that they do. But I want to break down those barriers. That's why Instagram is so chaotic for me. Like I'm so honest and too honest all the time. But I think it's because I, the, my biggest fear is that we all become LinkedIn. You know, I just cannot <laughs> yeah. stand this crap that we say all the time. And for me, it's like, how do we get online and have a different conversation and a two-way dialogue? And I would love to see that in parliament, in the judicial judicial system, and actually change the language and make it accessible for people. Yes, there are particular issues I'm passionate about, but I think the all-encompassing issue is the way that power speaks to the public. Mm, I think you're so good at that on Cheek Media as well. I think that's the reason why um, when we got on, we were like, oh, hi, because the way you speak to your audience is so <laughs> yeah. just like a friend FaceTiming you. And people think like, oh, it's easy to be yourself online, but it's actually really hard. Like I've tried to do that type of like casual speak to camera stuff and like to do that in front of 50,000 people and like having that two-way dialogue with an audience is very um, admirable. So thank you. Thank you. And it is hard. And it's also, it's still fake. And, and you know, that, that sucks to say it's not fake. It's as close as it can get. Yeah. But I, you know, I'm still a person with a lot of stuff that I don't publicly talk about. And I think yeah. people forget that. And it's, it's, um, it's still a vulnerable act every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to know as well, what has been the toughest challenge running Cheek Media and being in that social commentary space? I think the hardest is being one person, but being a company. Like I'm not a media platform. If I'm one person, I'm an opinion, you know, and how do I represent the views of a wide audience when I just have a take? And I also worry deeply that I might get it wrong or that people take what I'm saying as gospel and just reverberate. Um, and I don't want to be an echo chamber. And it often is, you know, that's unavoidable in a social media algorithm that's committed to that. Um, but for me, it's like, I am one person, I will get it wrong. And I, I don't have anyone to bounce off. Like my friends can listen, but they're not taking the risk of 70 something thousand people dealing with this and responding to this. And I'm still just putting ideas out there without a lot of expertise. You know, I'm not claiming to know everything. I'm not claiming to have all the answers, but the pressure is still there. And that's self-inflicted pressure, but it's, it's hard because I'm never going to be able to capture everything I need to capture as one person. And I want to build something that lasts way beyond me and isn't dependent on me personally feeling like you're FaceTiming me, you know, (laughs) and it's like, how do you build something that's progressive and united and interesting and accessible when you're one person right now who's just trying to like keep her rent being paid as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's a fine balance and I'm very I'm very hard on myself and I'm very judgmental and I know things are going well, but I'm constantly just like internally agonising over how to represent people and how to have good conversations without getting just lost in myself as well. It's such a hard balance, but I think especially from our conversation today, it just you've shown I think us and everyone else who's listening just how much you care and I think that's almost the most important thing like how seriously you take your platform which is so refreshing to hear as well um we are just off to our final question so every week on yeah I know we could keep going on forever but um every week on our podcast we give our listeners recommendations on what we've enjoyed like reading listening to or watching and we want to know, can you share a recommendation you've been loving recently? 
yes, I'm reading currently. I'm only a few, like, a, like a not that far in, but I know it's my recommendation already. Yeah. It's a book called Tissue by Madison Griffiths. Yes. And it's basically like a cultural, it's a personal story, but it's a cultural commentary on abortion. And it's really beautifully written. It's an incredible piece of writing. And I haven't read something that's really taken me so quickly as that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's my recommendation, yeah, because I haven't seen it talked about that much and I think that people should go and buy it because it's really fascinating work and she's incredible. Very brave. Yeah, I definitely want to read that and pick that up. I think we saw it in a bookshop the other day, Mags, when we were shopping together. I'm like, yes. oh, Madison Griffiths, need to get this. So, yeah, thank you for recommending and thank you for being on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And if thank our you. audience wants to know more, where can they find you? Instagram at cheekmedia.co is the best place. And we'll also have a link to your book that everyone can purchase (laughs) in our show notes. Thank you so much. Of course. Well, thanks again for joining us, Hannah. We'll chat to you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.